Section four of Mind Amongst the Spindles, edited by Charles Knight. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Marianne. The Fig Tree. It was a cold winter's evening. The snow had fallen lightly, and each tree and shrub was bending beneath its glittering burden. Here and there was one, with the moonbeams gleaming brightly upon it, until it seemed, with its many branches, touched by the ice spirit or some fairy-like creation, in its loveliness and beauty. Everything was hushed in Drydenville. Situated at a little distance was a large white house, surrounded with elm-trees, in the rear of which, upon an eminence, stood a summer-house, and in the warm season might have been seen many a gay lady reclining beneath its vine-covered roof. No pains had been spared to make the situation desirable. It was the summer residence of Captain Wilson. But it was now midwinter, and yet he lingered in the country. Many were the questions addressed by the villagers to the old gardener, who had grown grey in the captain's service, as to the cause of the long delay, but he could not, or would not, answer their inquiries. The shutters were closed, the fire burned cheerfully, and the astral lamp throwing its soft mellow light upon the crimson drapery and rich furniture of one of the parlours. In a large easy-chair was seated a gentleman, who was between fifty and sixty years of age. He was in deep and anxious thought, and ever and anon his lip curled, as if some bitter feeling was in his heart. Standing near him was a young man. His brow was open and serene, his forehead high and expansive, and his eyes beamed with an expression of benevolence and mildness. His lips were firmly compressed, denoting energy and decision of character. "'You may be seated,' said Captain Wilson, for it was he who occupied the large chair, the young man being only his son. "'You may be seated, Augustus,' and he cast upon him a look of mingled pride and scorn. The young man bowed profoundly and took a seat opposite his father. There was a long pause, and the father was first to break the silence. "'So you intend to marry a beggar and suffer the consequences. But do you think your love will stand the test of poverty and the sneer of the world? For I repeat, that not one farthing of my money shall you receive, unless you comply with the promise which I long since made to my old friend, that our family should be united. She will inherit his vast possessions, as there is no other heir.' True, she is a few years your senior, but that is of no importance. Your mother is older than I am. But I have told you all this before. Consider well ere you choose between wealth and poverty. Would that I could conscientiously comply with your request, replied Augustus, but I have promised to be protector and friend to Emily Somerville. She is not rich in this world's goods, but she has what is far preferable, a contented mind, and you will allow that, in point of education, she will compare even with Miss Clarkson. In a firm voice, he continued, I have made my choice. I shall marry Emily. And he was about to proceed, but his father stamped his foot and commanded him to quit his presence. He left the house, and as he walked rapidly toward Mr. Grant's, the uncle of Miss Somerville, he thought how unstable were all earthly possessions. And why, he exclaimed, why should I make myself miserable for a little paltry gold? It may wound my pride at first to meet my gay associates, 
but that will soon pass away, and my father will see that I can provide for my own wants. Emily Somerville was the daughter of a British officer, who for many years resided in the pleasant village of Drydenville. He was much beloved by the good people for his activity and benevolence. He built the cottage occupied by Mr. Grant. On account of its singular construction, it bore the name of the English Cottage. After his death it was sold, and Mr. Grant became the purchaser. There Emily had spent her childhood. On the evening before alluded to, she was in their little parlor, one corner of which was occupied by a large fig tree. On a stand were geraniums, rose bushes, the African lily, and many other plants. At a small table sat Emily, busily engaged with her needle, when the old servant announced Mr. Wilson. "'Oh, Augustus, how glad I am you are come!' she exclaimed, as she sprung from her seat to meet him. "'But you look sad and weary,' she added, as she seated herself by his side, and gazed inquiringly into his face, the mirror of his heart. "'What has happened? You look perplexed.' "'Nothing more than I have expected for a long time,' was the reply, and it was with heartfelt satisfaction that he gazed on the fair creature by his side, and thought she would be a star to guide him in the way of virtue. He told her all, and then he explained to her the path he had marked out for himself. "'I must leave you for a long time, and engage in the noise and excitement of my profession. It will not be long, if I am successful. I must claim one promise from you, that is, that you will write often, for that will be the only pleasure I shall have to cheer me in my absence. She did promise, and when they separated at a late hour, they dreamed not that it was their last meeting on earth. "'Oh, uncle,' said Emily, as they entered the parlour together one morning, "'do look at my fig-tree, how beautiful it is. If it continues to grow as fast as it has done, I shall soon sit under its branches.' "'It is really pretty,' replied her uncle, and he continued, laughing and patting her cheek. "'You must cherish it with great care, as it was a present from—now don't blush. I do not intend to speak his name, but was merely about to observe that it might be now, as in olden times, that as he prospers, the tree will flourish. If he is sick or in trouble, it will decay.' "'If such are your sentiments,' said Emily, you will acknowledge that thus far his path has been strewed with flowers. Many months passed, and there was indeed a change. The tree that had before looked so green had gradually decayed, until nothing was left but the dry branches. But she was not superstitious. It might be, she said, that she has killed it with kindness. Her uncle never alluded to the remark he had formerly made, but Emily often thought there might be some truth in it, she had received only one letter from Augustus, though she had written many. Summer had passed, and autumn was losing itself in winter. Augustus Wilson was alone in the solitude of his chamber. There was a hectic flush upon his cheeks, and the low, hollow cough told that consumption was busy. Was that the talented Augustus Wilson, he whose thrilling eloquence had sounded far and wide? His eyes were riveted upon a withered rose— it was given him by Emily, on the eve of his departure, with these words, Such as I am, receive me. Would I were of more worth for your sake. No, he musingly said, it is not possible she has forgotten me. I will not, I cannot believe it. 
He arose, and walked the room with hurried steps, and a smile passed over his face as he held communion with the bright images of the past. He threw himself upon his couch, but sleep was a stranger to his weary frame. Three weeks quickly passed, and Augustus Wilson lay upon his deathbed. Calm and sweet was his slumber, as the spirit took its flight to the better land. And, oh, it was a sad thing to see that father, with the frost of many winters upon his head, bending low over his son, entreating him to speak once more. But all was silent. He was not there. Naught remained but the beautiful casket. The jewel which had adorned it was gone. And deep was the grief of the mother, but, unlike her husband, she felt she had done all she could to brighten her son's pathway in life. She knew not to what extent Captain W. had been guilty. Augustus was buried in all the pomp and splendor that wealth could command. The wretched father thought in his way to blind the eyes of the world, but he could not deceive himself. It was but a short time before he was laid beside his son at Mount Auburn. Several letters were found among his papers, but they had not been opened. Probably he thought that by detaining them he should induce his son to marry the rich Miss Clarkson instead of the poor Emily Somerville. Emily Somerville firmly stood amidst the desolation that had withered all her bright hopes in life. She had followed her almost idolized uncle to the grave. She had seen the cottage and all the familiar objects connected with her earliest recollections pass into the hands of strangers. But there was not a sigh, nor a quiver of the lip, to tell of the anguish within. She knew not that Augustus Wilson had entered the spirit land until she saw the record of his death in a Boston paper. "'Oh, if he had only sent me word,' she said, "'even if it had been to tell me that I was remembered no more, "'it would have been preferable to this.' "'The light which had shone so brightly on her pathway was withdrawn, "'and the darkness of night closed around her. "'Long and fearful was the struggle between life and death, "'but when she arose from that sick bed, "'it was with a chastened spirit. "'I am young,' she thought, and I may yet do much good. And when she again mingled in society, it was with a peace that the world could neither give nor take away. She bade adieu to her native village, and has taken up her abode in Lowell. She is one of the class called Factory Girls. She recently received the letters intercepted by Captain Wilson, and the melancholy pleasure of perusing them is hallowed by the remembrance of him who is gone but not lost. I own. End of section 4